Esther chapter 1. So I've been led to do a study through the book of Esther on Wednesday nights. I have to admit it's been a little intimidating to tackle this book. And I still trust this is where God would have us to be. And tonight is only our third week in this study. I've only taken a week to introduce it. Probably could have even taken more time, but we talked about God's providence. Esther is probably the most unique book in our Bible in that it doesn't mention anything spiritual. So why is it in here? Because we can see that even though God is not mentioned, God is still at work. And it's been said that those who will not be led by the will of God will be led by God's providence. Because this is a people that are in exile. They had been taken captive by the Babylonians. But when Cyrus the Persian took over and released the Jews from captivity, the majority decided to stay in exile. Many would say they were outside the will of God, and we can argue that point later. But as a result, God's providence is going to take over And God will be at work behind the scenes. We'll see that throughout this book. Our second week, we considered how one could make the case that the opening events are showing us the prophetic picture of Israel's rejection of God as their king, which was pictured in Vashti's refusal to obey her husband, the king. Now, there's really too much to try to recap So if you missed any of it, I would certainly invite you to go back and listen to it, get well informed and get caught up. But for tonight, we're going to begin, we're going to read verses 1 through 9, and then we will move just a little bit further. But the Bible says in in verse 1 of Esther, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this is Ahasuerus which reigned from India even unto Ethiopia, over 107 and 20 provinces that in those days when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan the palace, in the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants, the power of Persia and Media, the nobles and princes of the provinces being before him, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even in hundred and fourscore days. And when these days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people, that were present in Shushan the palace, both unto great and small, seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace, where were white, green, and blue hangings, fastened with cords of fine linen and purple, to silver rings and pillars of marble. The beds were of gold and silver, and upon, upon a pavement of red and blue and white and black marble. And they gave them drink and vessels of gold, the vessels being diverse one from another the royal wine in abundance according to the state of the king. And the drinking was according to the law. None did compel. For so the king had appointed to all the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. Also Vashti the queen made a feast for the women in the royal house which belonged to King Ahasuerus. So I used verse 4 last time as our launching point. And so we're going to pick up in verse 5. But before we do... Just a reminder here, leading up to verse 5, King Ahasuerus is hosting this massive 180-day party. Six months. I, I hate celebrations as it is. Six months. 
He's showing off the riches of His kingdom to all of these invited leaders. He has His princes and servants from 127 provinces show up for this thing. I mentioned last time when we take this along with what we know in secular history, it it would appear that Ahasuerus here is the same as Xerxes. And he had a desire to expand the Persian Empire westward into Greece. And therefore, this celebration in chapter 1, it does appear to be correlated with that when Ahasuerus or Xerxes was trying to butter up people to buy into the idea that we need to go in and take more land. We need to expand our empire westward into Greece. And so he's hosting this party, hoping to get them to say, yeah, we can have this all the time. We can just take more land. And so that's what seems to be taking place here. And it was that event was foretold of in Daniel 11, 2, where it says, And now will I show thee the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than they all. And by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Grecia. And that is what Xerxes did. And in my opinion, I'm, I'm closer and closer now as I've been studying this as saying that Ahasuerus and Xerxes are one and the same. We can't say that dogmatically, but I'm, I'm starting to see that come together personally. And so perhaps what we're reading about here in Esther chapter 1 is him showing off all these riches to let people know we can take more. And we can have more, even more riches and even more parties. Now, a 180-day celebration in verse 5, it leads into, or in verse 4, this 180-day celebration in verse 4 leads into another celebration in verse 5, and it's an additional seven days to keep partying. And what better way to close off a six-month party than to have another week-long party? We are told this final celebration took place in the court of the garden of the king's palace located in Shushan. Now, I've mentioned this before, that this would be modern-day Iran, but to put this more in perspective for those who can picture such things, Shushan would have been in western Iran, almost along the border of Iraq, and if you can picture the Persian Gulf, just go a little bit northward, and that's where Shushan would have been located in the Persian Empire. It was also the capital in the palace for the Babylonians. And so I, I have read that Persia actually had two different cities that they used. Shushan was one of them. In verse 6, we get the description of the court of the garden. Now, some will seek for a spiritual meaning here in all of these colors that are given, and I don't think we need to do that. I think the point is just simply this. This man was loaded. He had a lot of money. Color was a big deal in those days. And he had all these colors and marble and all this stuff to decorate his garden. And so it's just letting us know that this man was very wealthy and that this location was really a sight to see because of his riches. Uh, I do want to mention that when we read there in verse... Um, what verse is it? Let me find it. In verse 6 where it mentions the beds, that for us would be like a sofa. And it would be like a couch or something like that. And remember in those days, in Bible times, they didn't eat at a table. But they would have a table with food on it, and then they would recline back on what they call beds here, but it would be like a couch to us or something like that. And that's how they would eat. Remember at the Last Supper, John, the beloved, is leaning on Jesus' chest because even though they had a table there, once they took what they 
were eating, you could then recline and, and eat in a reclined fashion. So all of the paintings that I've ever seen of the Last Supper are grossly misrepresented. You know, first of all, Jesus has always got that European look and that gigantic sunburst behind his head. You know, he didn't walk around with this radiant. Um, anyway, the whole painting just really gets under my skin. And if you have it, that's fine. That's fine. God, God bless you. Uh, I'm not against you. It's just not biblically correct. And, and I think we can say this, understanding that they would take from the table and then sit on these couches, beds, sofa-type things reclining, that it's far more biblical for us to eat in the living room. <laughs> now, I'm just making people like my family feel better. Because they didn't eat at the table. No, they were chilling. And so we eat in the living room. <laughs> Ever since Sydney left, I don't know. Yeah. Thank you, Sydney. Um, Anyway, so in verse 7, we see they break out the royal wine in abundance. And we get that parenthetical statement there that all the vessels were diverse one from another. I think many of us have diverse drinking vessels as well, but our reasons are far different than King Ahasuerus' reason. All of his vessels were different because he was rich. Ours are different because we have kids and glasses break, and instead of buying a new set, we just replace as we go. We used to have the assortment of plastic cups, remember that? And then, anyway. Um, and then what happens is one day, years later, the kids show back up at the house and they notice man, all the plates match? All the silverware is the same? You have matching glasses now. Why didn't we have this when we were here? Because we didn't have any money when you were here. And now that you're raised, we have money. Amen. So this statement here that all of King Hasuerus' drinking vessels were different is just further to show um, just how great riches he had because these were vessels of gold. Next in verse 8, we see that the drinking was according to the law, none did compel. At that time in Persian culture, no one had to feel pressured to consume alcohol. And as we see at the end of verse 8, that they should do according to every man's pleasure. For you military members, you know how formal military events typically have a social hour before the actual main event. And that social hour is just code for it's time for us to drink. And uh, I would never go to those because I never even wanted to deal with it, but you shouldn't feel compelled to consume alcohol. Uh, you will be invited to do so if you attend those. In verse 9, we see that Vashti, the queen, made a feast for the women in the royal house which belonged to King Ahasuerus. So it was their culture to keep the men and women separate during these parties. <laughs> Amen. Um, right, my wife didn't really get on board with that, and neither did y'all. But they would stay separate. Matthew Henry wrote this, quote, Thus, while the king showed the honor of his majesty, she and her lady showed the honor of their modesty, which is truly the majesty of the fair sex, end quote. And that'll come into play more as we get into this. We, we still see in some of the Eastern cultures today where men and women are not allowed to socialize together in public, in, in Yemen, for example, women can't even leave the house without the permission of their husbands. And so we have in these opening verses 
a snapshot of Ahasuerus's great wealth and a snapshot of Persian culture. And so they would remain separated, and that's going to be important. And so with all that introductory stuff, let's kind of get into this a little bit more by reading verses 10 and 11. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus the king, to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal, to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look upon. So we find that the king's heart is merry with wine, which is a fancy biblical way to say he's drunk. And when people get drunk, they usually get stupid. And they end up acting in ways that they otherwise wouldn't act. I've counseled them. My husband really is a nice guy when he's not drinking. Proverbs 20 and verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. In other words, drunkenness will cause people to go astray, and they will become unwise. Many crimes and abuses in our society can be traced back to alcohol. That was a major problem when I was in the military. It seemed like everything that we dealt with was always tied back to alcohol or drug use. Proverbs 23, verses 29 through 35 Who hath woe, who hath sorrow, who hath contentions, who hath babbling, who hath wounds without a cause, who hath redness of eyes, they that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed wine. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. At the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. They have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. When shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. Paul told Timothy that a man of God is not to be given to wine. And the reason is because a pastor who's in charge of the oversight of a church should not be influenced by some strange presence in their system to give perverted judgment contrary to the Word of God. There's a reason that alcohol is called spirits. You're putting a different spirit in you. Pastor, a leader's judgments, they're to be pure and in accordance with the Word of God. And if he's one who is given to wine, he might end up making decisions contrary to the law of God. God commanded the priests in the Old Testament in Leviticus 10... Verses 9 through 11. Do not drink wine nor strong drink, thou nor thy sons with thee, when ye go into the tabernacle of the congregation, lest ye die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations, and that ye may put difference between holy and unholy, between unclean and clean, and that ye may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken unto them by the hand of Moses." And if I could drill that down just a little bit further, I know that's Old Testament for the priests, but I believe the Bible teaches that um, men, husbands, we're to be the priests of our homes. And as, as the priests of our home, I believe as leaders of our home, we should not be given to wine because it'll lead to wrong thinking, wrong decisions, and wrong actions. Ephesians 5.18, And be not drunk with wine, where is in excess, 
but be filled with the Spirit. You want to get drunk? Get drunk off the Spirit. Amen. Be controlled by the Spirit because you're controlled when you're drunk by another spirit. The Bible is saying be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, King Ahasuerus, he's no longer sober-minded. And though no man was being forced to drink, he chose excess. And as a result, he's going to do something that he otherwise wouldn't have done. Proverbs 31, verses 4 and 5 says, It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law. That's why leaders shouldn't drink alcohol. And I'll quote Matthew Henry again. He wrote this, When the wine is in, the wit is out, and men's reasons depart from them. And I've seen this on my deployments, quote-unquote deployments, Brother DeGarmo. I've seen this where people get liquored up and all of a sudden they're not who they are on the job. And Ahasuerus here in his drunken state, he forgets the law of the Persians. And in verse 11, he makes a request that breaks the social etiquette of his day, the customs of his day, and the laws of his own kingdom. And so he commands these seven chamberlains. Many believe these were eunuchs because they dealt with these women. And so he commands these chamberlains to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal to show everybody her beauty because she was fair to look on. And so as he's showing off the riches of his kingdom, he decides to show off the glories of his wife's beauty. Had he been sober, he would have never done this. In fact, if somebody would have suggested it and he was sober, he would have dealt with that person probably very harshly. And so what we're, what we're reading here is something that should not have been requested. But again, his drunkenness is causing him to act out of line. Now, There's many speculations as to what is meant or maybe what is being alluded to in verse 11. Some believe that the king's intent was to show off her beauty in a scandalous manner. Others suggest that other than breaking the customs of those days, there really wasn't anything scandalous about his request. You'll find opinions on both ends of the spectrum and in between. We don't know for sure, so we must be careful about speculating here because it doesn't say... But what we do know is that this request goes against their culture. We saw in verses 8 and 9 that it was customary for the men and the women to be separate in these public gatherings in that time. And so for her to appear would be out of bounds. And he was placing a hardship upon her by making this request. And we still have places in our world today where women cannot appear in public unveiled. I mean, those under Taliban rule have to be completely covered. They don't show anything. And there's other areas where a woman must always have her head covered. Other places where a woman might can show her eyes and her hands, but that's it. And there's a lot of variations there, but I'm just trying to give you a sense of the culture that we're reading about here because the Persian Empire has its roots in Iran. And if you look at a lot of the rules in Iran and the surrounding countries, there's a lot of this kind of thing that still goes on. And it's been handed down from centuries to centuries, although I'm sure it's changed a lot over the years. But I'm just trying to show you that what we even see some of this today. So this is what we ought to kind of be thinking here in chapter 1. 
And so most agree that the whole reason Queen Vashti refused to appear was because this was not permitted. This was not allowed according to their culture, their laws, and all of that. And because it wasn't allowed, people are saying, well, this is why she's so bold in her refusal, because she knew I shouldn't be doing this. She would have been well aware of the danger of upsetting a king, wouldn't you think? (laughs) Amen. Surely we can understand this is not a wise request by Ahasuerus, no matter the custom. Why would you request your wife to come and show off her beauty in front of a bunch of drunken men? Amen. I mean, come on, guys. Amen. So in verse 12, Vashti, she refuses to come at the king's commandment. I personally believe she's justified in doing so. And and in some ways, we can say we ought to applaud her for her stand. I believe she's justified both morally and judicially. The the moral reasons are obvious. This is just not a good request to make. And though it was at the request of her husband, a law requiring her to obey is not going to be enacted until the end of chapter 1. So leading up to this point, a woman had a right to say no. And so she's right both morally and judicially as far as I'm concerned, legally. And... When a command is given that is illegal, immoral, or unethical, you have a right to disobey that command, no matter who it comes from. Amen. Because sometimes husbands will ask things of their wife that are immoral, and they feel conflicted because they feel like they have the biblical obligation to obey but not when it's illegal, unethical, or immoral. And so we should not be putting those hardships upon other people. And I I say that to everybody in, in counseling when it comes up. Listen, if it's crossing a boundary of God's Word, you do not have to obey it. And, and I don't care if it's, if it's employer, I don't care what it is in society, if it breaks your conscience with God, you have the moral right to say no Amen. and hang the consequences. You'll just have to deal with it. But make a stand for what's right. So the king, he's dishonoring himself. He's dishonoring himself as her husband. He's the one that ought to protect her modesty. Not try to get her to expose her modesty. No matter what it meant in their culture. Whatever the law was. I mean, whatever that meant then. He should have been protecting that. And as husbands, we ought to be careful to protect the modesty of our wife. Abimelech told Sarah in Genesis 20.16, Behold, I have given thy brother, speaking of Abraham, a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, he is to thee a covering of the eyes, and all that are with thee, and with all other. Thus she was reproved. If you recall there in Genesis 20, when Abraham decides to go to where Abimelech is, he thinks they're going to be a bunch of godless people. And so he lies to Abimelech and says that Sarah is my sister, which was a white lie, but it's a lie nonetheless. He never mentions that She is his wife. And so Abimelech sees Sarah, and he wants to have her for his wife. 
How old was she at that point? I mean, she was still smoking hot, amen? That's all. Okay, anyway, um, he wanted to, to be with her. And then Abimelech, he's saying to Sarah, your husband Abraham is to be your covering. He's to be your protection. He was to be so united with her that there was no doubt that she belonged to him. They were one. But because he was worried about his own skin, he propagated a lie and had to be reproved by Abimelech. How embarrassing. So in our text, Ahasuerus is failing to be the kind of husband his wife deserves. Instead of being her covering, he's attempting to have others look upon her beauty in a way that would cause them to be desirous of her. And that's the whole context of why he wants her to come in. And that is to his shame. Ephesians 5, 25-29, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh but nourisheth and cherisheth it even as the Lord, the church. And so we should love our wives as Christ loved the church. And we are to treat her as glorious and holy and present her in a way that is without blemish. And we're to nourish and to cherish her. Our wife... It's not to be some trophy on our arm that we parade around to get attention or to use for gain in other ways. We're not showing her off for all to see physically, but she is to be loved as an extension of her own body and become a crown to her husband being a virtuous woman. Let's finish verse 12. We'll have to pick up the rest of chapter 1 next time. We see at the end of verse 12 that at her refusal, the king was very wroth and his anger burned in him. Just as drunkenness can make people stupid, it can make them wroth. It can make them wrathful. It can make them angry. And notice how quickly the king goes from being merry to being angered. That's why it's dangerous to be drunk with alcohol person may be a happy drunk. He may be an angry drunk. He may turn abusive. Sometimes he may be merry and then all of a sudden turn mean. And that goes for the she's as well. We'll see as we continue in this chapter, irreversible damage can happen as a result of a decision made in anger. I'll have to get into that next time, but listen, we need to be very careful about exploding in our home. These men are not in the right mind. And in the king's drunken rage, a decree will be issued which will end Vashti's reign as queen. And so here's a man that has control over 127 provinces, and yet he doesn't have control over his own spirit. How many men have been elevated to great places of authority 
in their careers, and yet they have no control over themselves or their own homes. Let's pray.